What's up, everybody? Kevin and Mike Wagstaff here. <laughs> I was about to say startups for the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> What's up, everybody? Kevin and Mike Wagstaff here. Boot another episode of Boot. Uh, What's up, everybody? Kevin and Mike Wagstaff here. Another episode of Bootstrapping SaaS to Millions. We're going to talk today about an article Mike just found on Inc.com about, and the, the title is Five Ways Middle Market Companies Can Kickstart Growth. Why did this come up and how did you find the article? Man, I was up late last night doing some soul searching. I'm like, what the next year is going to be about for our company, for us, kind of where we're at. I know that we... Um, have some kind of challenges. Like we're, we grow every month, but our growth has been somewhat flat. And so we're seeking for ways to kind of um, continue growing our growth rate, which is what every startup wants to do. It's, um, it's what keeps everybody optimistic and keeps the uh, narrative looking good, right? And just feels good to always say, hey, we're growing our growth rate. We're getting better with what we do. And so I don't even remember what search ended up here, but um, this company, it's also actually based out of Denver, has done some research. And they found that this space between 2 million and 10 million is really hard for companies. So like they, you know, they say, okay, once startup people get past that 2 million, they're an established company, they'll likely survive, but it's really hard to get to what they define as that mid-market, which is 10 million plus in revenue. And they did this, some big study. There was like quantitative as well as qualitative segments to it. So like what that means is interviewing people, talking to people that were quitting companies, talking to CEOs as well as doing um, surveys of some 2,500 companies across the space and just saying, what are you doing? What are you focused on? And it sounds like from their study, the data fairly lined up around these five things that companies did well to go from 2 million to 10 million. So of course, you know, us being kind of in the middle of that, at, uh, hopefully closing in on 7 million by the end of the year here, we, um, we're encountering a lot of these. And so it really resonated with me. I thought it was a cool thing for us to talk about, share with everybody, and um, maybe just share where we're at on the journey of some of these things that we're working on, things that we think we've done all right, and um, see what we can dive into. Yeah, let's go through it. And after reading it, it, this stuff applies to probably anyone at any point in their company after launch in terms of, it's maybe like watered down or lighter versions of this when you're just new and trying to get your first hundred customers, maybe you don't spend a ton of time on say your vision or alignment, but these themes, I think, I don't think it's ever too early to start thinking about. I wish we started thinking about them earlier, at least even like 10 minutes a week. Right. Yeah. hundred um, percent. So let's just, yeah, let's jump into it. Um, and also actually first I want to hit touch on like bootstrapped growth. We as bootstrappers, are prone to not looking at the numbers or focusing on growth rates as much because we don't have investors. We don't have people giving us an end date, giving us a, a benchmark and saying, you got to exit by seven years, you know, cause our VC fund needs our money back. So I think this stuff is so important for bootstrappers to pay attention to in terms of like growth plateaus and things like that, because I, I can't help but get the sense. So like a majority of bootstrap companies kind of peter out in this two to 10, one to five range when there's so much potential to go beyond that, focus yeah. on the right things. Like nobody holds our feet to the fire and that's problematic. And it's, um, what was that quote that I told you uh, earlier about Mike Tyson, 
where it's like it's hard to get up and run first thing in the morning when you're sleeping in silk sheets. And I think to an extent, once you get past maybe that two, three, four million dollar mark, and if you're profitable, you kind of feel like, oh man, I've made it. You know, we're not rich, but we feel like, all right, cool. This is like better than working a job from a financial standpoint. We have more control than any job we could have ever had. And so it could be easy to raise that victory flag and just kind of get complacent and chill, right? And now, and, and but that's, we had a sobering conversation last night of how that could be very um, disastrous if we just started chilling and like getting loose with spend, just, oh yeah, just hire a few more people, buy a few more really expensive tools with questionable gain. That's um, a sure way for things to kind of reverse and, uh, you know, all the graphs start heading in the wrong direction. So without those external pressures of investors, we have to generate it ourselves. We have to find these inputs. We have to find these articles. We have to look at surveys and studies and say, hey, what are these funded companies doing so we can hold ourselves to maybe not the same, but similar standards for growth and, you know, the narrative of um, where things are going, because, Ultimately, yeah, what else are we going to compare ourselves to if we're just comparing it to like having a job? Well, that's not really um, going to drive us beyond where we're at. Yeah. And that goes back to our whys. And and honestly, what drives me is having like what they call, you know, fuck off money. And like, I think it, that's a goal. And it, I think you have to get above that five or 10 million a year to ever have a valuation where you have that like fuck off money. And I think that's everyone has their number, you know? <laughs> yep. yep. All right. So number one, the, the thing that they said um, is the first thing is alignment. And so they kind of outlined it as, you know, you think of these startups and they're all just, you know, CEO comes in and has a new idea and then they just start building it. And then the next quarter they say, hey, we're focusing on something else. And they don't really know like what their market is or have a clear strategy for continuing to attack it. And so alignment is basically saying, hey, everybody's rolling in the right direction, the same direction at the same time. And so that's a top-down thing. Um, honestly, I don't think we've been great at this. I think that sometimes we are prone to having a new idea and then like devoting resources to it and then kind of shelving it or having a product that, you know, or a feature that we get to beta. And then we're like, ah, I kind of lost interest in that. Let's um, swing back to something else, the new shiny thing. And I think, um, this is especially glaring right now where we have like a half dozen things that are in some phase of alpha or beta and we just need to commit, have patience and tie the bow and ship certain things. Um, I don't know. What do you think about alignment? You know, feature completion, it, it, I, I see part of that. Some of that could just be process and ownership too. Um, Cause I, yeah, it gets murky thinking about alignment of creating a better product, adding features versus us doing research on like other revenue opportunities and throwing spaghetti at the wall at times. It's such a fine line. And I get why, you know, this, why this article hit home with us of like, are we over the, are we tiptoeing the line of, 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 uh, distracting the team? Cause I think it's one thing for founders to talk about other opportunities, model it out, spend our time. But it's like, I sometimes can't help talking about it to the team. And then that's where it can fracture alignment. And, um, and so, yeah, feature completion, though, is a weird one because it do. Yeah. Do we lose interest? Do we just like not have anyone owning it? It does. And that goes back to maybe alignment of vision. What's the vision? Is the vision to create a better product and kick out features? Yeah. Great. So, 
<sighs> we're pondering right now, right? <laughs> this is one that probably early on, it's not an issue because early on you're aligned with like, dude, get to 300 customers, get to 500 customers, get to a million in revenue. And that's pretty clear. And you do what it takes. That's easy, right? That part, that it was easy for us to be aligned for the first couple of years. Yeah. And it's when your team is smaller, it seems easier. Whereas now it's like a little bit bigger of a boat. It takes a little bit longer to turn around. And, um, and so you just have to be more clear and kind of issue marching, marching orders and then be able to say, okay, if we can alter anything, it'll be next quarter, not next week or next sprint. Um, and just giving people that comfort, I think, as the team gets big, that it's not going to be just like the CEO that comes in, drops a grenade at a meeting and then leaves everybody else to pick up the pieces. Um, something else that they mentioned in this article is that uh, companies that did well in this, they uh, were positioned in their market to win a high percentage of deals. And I know that's something that we've been talking about a lot of like, how do we become like the dominant player in our market? Not just the top three, which I think we are, but to become like the default where everybody's like, oh yeah, of course you go with Spectora. The only reason you consider others is if you're poor or something, right? And that's, that's where I hope uh, we devote a lot of time and energy to in this next year and not like kind of stop just shy of the finish line. I have shit. The hardest part in our industry is like, no, like finding data and numbers to know if we're dominant. It's like when we don't know how many new people get in the industry, it's like, how do we ever know that we're dominant? That's so hopefully we figure that out. How do you deal with alignment versus pivoting to external circumstances or economic factors or competitive factors? How do, where do you draw the line and how do you reconcile the two? That's a tough question. I think to me, it is more of that um, not being knee-jerk reactionary, but by having this clear strategic vision, you can alter it, but it's not like altering it like this week and drop everything, we're doing this. It's saying more like, I have confidence in the vision strategy we set out, but let's alter it maybe to head more towards this direction. Let's tweak it. So in a couple quarters, we're maybe slightly on a different course, but um, I don't know. I think there's probably plenty of counterexamples out there. People that were like, yeah, this thing we're working on sucks, but let's pivot it. I think Slack was something born out of like some video game company. Instagram. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, it's hard to know what actually went on behind closed doors, how strategic and slow those were versus like, uh, hey, midweek, let's just change our whole business strategy. Um, But I get that we're not talking about edge cases. This, you know, big study probably is like, what's 80% of companies that are doing well doing? And let's align with it. I think one of the things in here, maybe kind of a segue to the next point, is that um, sometimes it's kind of boring because they have the discipline to just keep doing the same thing over and over, which is point number two, uh, discipline. When you scale, when you grow, it's having that process down. It's having, um, they mentioned making sure you have regularly scheduled performance reviews, establish metrics that are tied to compensation. Uh, I know that we used to be a little bit willy-nilly. Like, oh, man, that was an awesome conference. Here's like a bonus. Here's a salary bump. And then maybe we regret it later. Um, so, yeah, just having that discipline to have systems, to stick to them. And, um, yeah, growing with that in mind. This is one we're going to work on this month, literally. Uh, I think every founder, not every founder, I bet a lot of founders struggle with this because the chaos and just reacting and just, making moves early on was easy, but like sitting down to have a meeting about how to tie metrics to compensation that takes discipline. And like, that's what we're, I think we're flexing those muscles now. Right. Cause it, it's probably not something that comes natural to either of us. No, 
No, I don't think so. It, it's something that you're right. The early chaos, you're, you're less worried about being efficient because you're trying to survive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it says, you know, to become efficient requires that discipline to keep getting better and better at what you do. And those are finally numbers that we're starting to track. We're starting to track revenue per team member. We want that to keep going up, right? The more people you hire, it should be like this leverage effect where you get economies of scale, not people doing less. And so, yeah, that's something that we're going to be having a big focus on. I know for the product and engineering team, we're going to try and restructure into pods where it's just a handful of people with a clear objective for a quarter and they either going to hit it or they're not. And then we can actually evaluate instead of here's all these things we're trying to do and everybody's trying to do a little piece of it. Nobody has accountability and ownership. Nobody has a metric to move. I think that chaos has led us to um, slowing down a little bit in terms of production and output. Yeah. And getting to know ourselves better is big because any founders that are people pleasers like us, when you put standardization in effect and put numbers and hold people accountable, it's going to feel like conflict. It's going to feel like you're going to make them a little uncomfortable. And we have to get comfortable with making people a little uncomfortable. <laughs> we really do. Like I, I, I'm talking myself into it every day of like, Hey, more, um, expect clear expectations are coming. And if you can do that earlier, I think you just set people up for, for success. It's like my boy, Alex Toussaint Peloton trainer always talks about, he's like, he's going to challenge you and he's going to smile while doing it and not even feel bad. Cause that's what everybody's showing up for is to yeah. be challenged. And, um, yeah, sometimes I think we err too much on the side of feel goods and like, hey, everybody's like really enjoying their job. But is that I, th- I believe that people can enjoy the job and also be challenged and grow and be held accountable and have metrics to move. And maybe it's even more enjoyable when they can point at a scoreboard and say, yeah, I put up some of those points. I believe after limited you know, experience with you and I, I think the key to this early on is sitting in a room by yourself or sitting in a room with your co-founder and finding out the metrics that matter and like committing to them. Because then when you're talking to your team, you know how to anchor their compensation to the things that are important instead of being caught up in the moment and, and all that. So and one thing for early founders, the ascendance in this article, when you are discounting with every account and every proposal is different or nuanced, then you are not going to grow. So basically I, this is runs rampant, I think in, in early startups of like, the need to bend over backwards, the need to discount. We did it. We probably wish we could have back half the ones we did. Yeah. Yeah. There was a lot, you know, and I remember I would always be the guy granted it was easier when I wasn't directly talking to him, just be like, no, our price is our price. And that's what we do. And then there was always like, well, we might lose the sale. And you know, mm-hmm. whether it's you or some of our um, sales team saying like, we really need to give this two free accounts to this big company or whatever to make it feel good. Who knows, you know, if we would have held our ground, if they would have come on board, or if that would have been a reason to like not come on board. But yeah, in retrospect, it's like the price should be the price. You know, we should, we should have done that far less, I believe. And if the value wasn't quite there for them yet, like kind of be okay with that. Because yeah, we still have some really screwy accounts where nobody can really track why the numbers are the way they are. Yeah. And on the flip side, to argue against that point, there's very specific customers that we gave early discounts to that are our biggest vocal proponents now that are the biggest megaphones, would they have signed up anyway? Probably, but we don't know, you know, you can't go back in time and, and do that exercise, but there's people that that show of good faith matters and I felt it, but I can't prove it. So that's one of those things where you just gotta listen to your deep gut instinct of how influential a customer is 
how serious they are, how much they're bluffing you. Right. And remember, again, the study is two to 10 million range, right? That kind of transitionary period. I think in the early days, I mean, you kind of, you know, we had to do what we could just to get customers and ensure we could pay the bills. True, true. And so I think maybe some different rules might apply. And I would be willing to bet most of our exceptions were in that phase before two early on. So, yeah, because big companies, they're sold on you a lot of times. And of course, they're these big, bigger contracts, they're going to be more savvy to wheel and deal. Yeah. Yeah. Just the last point on that one is like they said, companies with discipline established impartial oversight by independent board members or financial auditors. So somebody to check us. We've never had that. I, it, it sounds weird, right? To be like, hey, somebody check us and make sure we're doing well financially. And that's, um, you know, not making bad decisions, not giving away the farm. And so that's a pretty interesting concept. It's something I've never really considered. I think we should form a board. I think, you know, I've heard that um, as advice from other bootstrappers of like, Hey, you're not pushed to do it because you're not VC backed, but like start with two people, one on, a, on your board. So maybe, maybe we talk about that. Yeah, maybe so. I know we have a leadership team in place where now we're starting to talk big financial decisions. I guess to the counterpoint to that is like death by committee where everybody just argues over stuff and then nobody is like the decider that makes something happen. They're not impartial either. They're, you know, it's got, it's like, that's the whole point is like, get a, an executive that literally is not in the day to day and they might just come in and be like, Oh no, that's stupid. Don't do that. Yeah. Um, all right. The third point, predictability. So forecasting, um, it said, I think, uh, out of 147 CEOs, they asked the question of what chance do you have of meeting your second quarter sales forecast? And like barely any of them knew the answer. <laughs> Because they didn't forecast, they didn't have numbers, metrics behind it. So they didn't constantly study their numbers. And I think predictability comes with knowing your numbers really, really well, creating solid forecasts, and then adapting. And I think we very loosely have done that. <laughs> Just took a number and said, like, yeah, like we'll double. Let's and add a you know, add another hundred or two hundred to that. And then you would take the higher end of the prediction. I'd go on the lower end. And that was our forecasting. Yeah, we kind of extrapolated past trends instead of saying, hey, is this based on uh, you know, the output of our sales team, the amount of dials that they make with the conversion rate taken into effect with the average ticket price? To me, that's like a big growth area for this next year is to have a predictable sales engine. Um, and we're actually engaging with a consultancy company to help us with that. Because I think it's easy, and especially when you're early on, it's easy to just be like, yeah, how can we possibly know? We, we do what we do. We make the calls. We connect with people. And like some months are up and some months are down. And that's probably the sign of an immature company. But, you know, as we've grown, we've seen a lot more predictability to the numbers. And so it's nice to say, okay, we add this process in place. What happens to those numbers? How do we ensure that, you know, within a, a variance of, you know, maybe 10 or 20%, there's like a very good predictable clockwork engine going on here. And um, that's probably, I get, I get why that's a big key to going from small to big market. I don't even feel bad about this one because our, our product and industry, I don't know if it's unique or not, but we are very big word of mouth, very big herd mentality industry where words spread online. We didn't have to be a heavy sales org early on. I know some companies, they have to be great at sales pipelines from like day one. And they can actually track in HubSpot or Salesforce right away. Whereas we're just now getting to that point, which is, has probably saved us a lot of money over the years. True. 
Um, and so, yeah, we're at the point, we're at the perfect point now to focus on it. So be predictable, have a sales pipeline, pay attention to what dials and emails do. Um, all right. Number four, endurance. Um, and so, yeah, they just talk about, it, it's never just a sprint mentality. And some of the companies where you see burnout and people leaving organizations is because the founders said, Hey, this is just like a, a sprint that then just never lets up and people start getting stressed. They start burning out. And so, um, having the, for the leaders to have credibility, they say that there needs to be this like endurance mentality of, what does the long-term plan look like? How do we have systems in place that are um, kind of recognizing people, giving them learning and development opportunities and inspiring confidence that we're going to hit these forecasts that we're going to do, as we said, and not just painting these like rosy pictures of the future and then never getting there and making everybody demoralized. Yeah, this, this line in here that talks about companies promising fast growth um, with big money and and beckoning from the finish line. So we talk a little bit about this, about not over-promising growth, promising growth to everybody. It's like a balancing act, right? Keeping people excited, but letting them know it's a marathon and not a sprint. And we're finding our art to that, but I think a, a calm leadership team that focuses on habits day to day kind of promotes that. And, and we've shown it by example. I think we've shown up for five years straight now you know, four years with a team, that's not overnight. That's not an overnight success, right? That's like showing up for four years in a row doing good things. And so that's, that's, we talk about entrepreneurial endurance a lot. How do you combat that? Because I can tell you that I see online founders chasing squirrels every day. And we talk like, it starts with us. It starts with you as a founder. How do you combat either burnout or, or not chasing squirrels. Yeah. On the burnout piece. I mean, I think it is realizing that we're, we gotta be in this for the long haul. There might be times for sprints, but they should be very known with a very clear goal. That's like attainable in a short time frame. but otherwise, yeah, it's like, are you working out regularly? Are you getting family time in? Are you getting that like whatever creative outlets you have or escapism outlets that you have? Are you making sure to get those in and you're not just burning the candle at both ends? To me, that's um, that was hard in the early days because there was just so much to do and it was just you and me doing stuff. And I was the guy that was coding it all. So if I didn't make move the needle on it, nothing was getting built. And so there was an element of burnout that happened. And I think I talked about that in like episode two or three where it felt like a sprint and, um, and in a way it was, it was a sprint to where we could afford to hire some people to help out. And uh, we want to do it through revenue because we didn't want to take on funding. And so in a way that was a sprint that had a finite end goal is just maybe a bit longer than anticipated, but yeah, to me, that that's huge is making sure you have the habits in place to keep the knife sharp. Cause if you're not, then how can you expect your team to be? How can you um, show up consistently? Holistic health. We, we, we preach that a lot. I have a, almost an opposing concern that because you and I have figured this out and we kind of understand balance and we have good work-life balance, we are, we're, we're in pretty good, healthy spots, financially, physically, emotionally, 
our team hasn't gone through what we've gone through. They were not with us in those first couple of years. They didn't have to scrap. I worry that they are going to be like us when they should also be learning how to maybe drive five miles above the speed limit, not 50. We don't want anyone burning out. We don't want no one works 80 hours a week at our company or even 60. But like, I worry that we're, they overly are going to have endurance and uh, just jogging at a comfortable pace when we need part of our team sprinting ahead at times. Cause you and I've done that. So, you know, that's, that's, if they follow us to a T, how do we prevent that? And I'm just thinking out loud here of like people follow their leaders. It's easy if your leader's a psychopath, not psychopath, like a maniac, like Elon Musk, who's always, always on and has had divorces and just works all the time. But like, if they follow us, they're just going to kind of jog. Yeah. That's such a tough question, right? Cause there is a sense that like startups are a great environment for people to like to rocket launch their careers ahead a few steps and be a few years ahead of where they could be. But I think it is for the people that are willing to put in a little bit more to, to push themselves a little bit harder. Cause come on, we've all had corporate jobs where they're kind of a joke. You, you know, you can phone it in half the time. And um, still somehow, you know, get inevitable promotions and raises just because you're there. I think the startup space definitely demands people that are willing to go above and beyond a little bit. I don't know how much that pushing comes from within versus from us saying, hey, this is an opportunity to press on the gas and it might be a bit of a sacrifice for the future. That's tough, right? Because then if everybody starts doing that, then I can see how that leads to burnout culture. But yeah like to an extent, like we really paid our dues and put in the time to get to the level of success we're at. And it's, um, it's tough to see when other people just want that because they're here. Right. Right. That's, uh, you start to try to fill your toolbox with all these metaphors and analogies and concepts of like, you know, I think of like hit workouts where it's like, take time to recover, but then sprint or like Naval says, work like a lion, you know, like feed and then rest. But anyway, well, that's something we're working on. So the fifth one here is value creation. So that sounds basic, right? Just when you see the the title and the headline, it talks about knowing what your company is worth and the val- and how the value is created within your business. Um, they talked about founders just spouting out a multiple of revenues of what their business is worth, which we're, we're, we're guilty of, <laughs> but I think everyone is. Um, but knowing your market, it talks about your distribution of customers, or if you're serving too many markets that a business wouldn't want to purchase someone that's in 20 different verticals because they wouldn't be able to absorb it and, and handle it. So basically saying as a stakeholder, zooming out and knowing the outcomes that create value in your company as generic and like consultancy as that sounds. Yeah. But I mean, it makes sense, right? Cause we're trying to craft a software product and there needs to be clear value, a clear market. It needs to be understood that like, Oh, I pay hundred bucks a month. And th- these are the things I get in a way. A business is also a product that somebody might want to purchase or invest in somewhere down the line. And if it's not clear what we do, or if there's these like clear gaps, like, Oh, all their customers are in this one state or, you know, one key piece of legislation could sink that company, then that makes it a really risky asset. And so I think it makes sense to really think of your business as this product that you're creating, kind of like that built to sell mentality. I haven't read the book, but I imagine it's about something like this. And, um, and so, yeah, how much is that? Uh, 
we've always been tempted to say, oh, let's just talk with all these people that want to acquire us just to get an idea of what we're valued at. But then we shy away because it seems like this massive distraction where you're like coming up with numbers and they promise it's only going to be a few hours of your time. And then you're, you know, we've done it once or twice maybe. And then you're, you know, 20, 30 hours deep and they're asking for these really detailed metrics and really trying to understand things before they can give you anything, which makes sense. That's how I would be if I were buying something. But then you realize all the stuff you could have done in that same time period. And so I'm torn on this one. Uh, I mean, I think we have a general idea of the value we're creating, but it's definitely not specific. Yeah. Yeah. But I think at a, I think of it in terms of communicating it to our team of the value we create, like you said, what we charge, what they get, how we, you know, accumulate MRR and ARR repeating that stuff to the team, I think helps everyone to have a good grasp of the business. Um, that might be something different than what this one is talking about, but I think that creates team buy-in for everyone to kind of know how the business functions at a basic level. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The equity holders, the profit sharing people, like those are folks that really would benefit from knowing, Oh, we did this thing. And now my life is this much better because of it. Um, instead of it being just like this hush hush thing, like, Ooh, I have a thousand shares. I don't know what that means. And, um, it's something that we could probably get better at. Cause I think, don't you agree as founders, we, we tend to think once we, if we say something once, someone always understands it. Whereas like the repeating thing, I know everyone has a hard time repeating things because you don't want to feel like a parent or you don't want to feel like you're like belittling someone by repeating something. But I think that's part of our job now is repeating things that are important. Yeah. hundred percent. We, we have to, we have to do it often. And, um, and then checking for understanding or challenging people to like, Hey, you tell me what I'm trying to get across here to make sure that you understand it. So in summary for these things, after you read these things, what, what are your action items? What are you saying? What are you thinking about? Hey, how do we get at these five things better? How do we improve at them? Uh, you and I already said, Hey, we're going to do another session this month, just to more clearly refine our, our goals, our alignment, like where's our focus going to be for next year and to make it very clear and transparent. So we can keep talking about them over and over with our leaders, with our team, to make sure that everybody's on the same page. So I think that's a big takeaway. Um, I think when it comes to that predictability thing, like I said, we're gonna be refining our growth side of the house just to have hopefully greater predictability. A lot of exciting things hopefully are coming our way in that sense. Um, yeah, and then just probably having more frank conversations with, with the folks on our team that have equity stake or profit sharing um, to make sure they understand how every decision moves the needle. I know sometimes we've been like, oh, everybody just wants to hire more and spend more on tools lately. Um, let's make sure that these are all driving real value in the long run and not just a way to alleviate a little pain right now. Right. That's always uh, a big discussion, it seems like, and it's getting more frequent as our team grows. That's hard for us as capital allocators now to say, all right, how much more of a profits are we putting in it better be turning into a future greater amount of profits. Really hard to know. And so, um, yeah, just having more of those discussions, I think. How about you? Yeah, the exact same thing. A higher level of focus every day on on the numbers and the finances, which is, it, it was easy to, to not do that when the numbers kept going up and to the right. It's easy to say, oh, there's there's margin. Cool. Like, you know, we're just dipping into like the icing on the cake. And now I feel like, 
we've kind of gone through the icing and now we're dip, like t- biting out of the cake and it matters now. So it, it like harder conversations. I agree of, of, ask, of asking people to care about the numbers, especially a leadership team. That's, that's their job now. Yeah. That friend of yours that, that I met the other day, uh, he's building a SAS for the oil and gas industry. And, you know, he was talking about where he's at. He's kind of free revenue. And, um, it was just fascinating to think because, you know, he was like, oh, yeah, I feel like every decision looks like very much matters, like so much going forward. And I was like, man, that just never changes, you know, because now I feel like, OK, we have more chips in play, but every decision could either, you know, dramatically reduce them or dramatically increase them. And um, I almost long for the days of the simple days of like, I, we know what we need to build. And we're going to build it and we're gonna keep talking to customers. Now it feels like um, everything is a little bit more. Uh, it's it's a lot more of a human endeavor and emotional endeavor. It's about inspiration and vision and leadership. It's about motivation and, and incentivization and all these kind of more abstract concepts that it's emotionally draining. It's 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 probably two to three x more draining than I remember just coding all day. <laughs> so, I agree. The early yeah. days were energizing. This I think we spend more time worrying because there's less oversight. Every new hire has less oversight from us. Yeah. So, you know, there's like multiple, not babysitters, I guess, middle management, whatever you want to call them, but we no longer have direct oversight. And I think that just naturally breeds a sense of a lack of control or a lack of not knowing what's going on. And quality goes down. I think if, mm-hmm. if things aren't tightly, if you don't have the right people in place leading others. Oh, and this is, yeah. I mean, we can get deep here when it comes to like, you know, every individual's propensity to trust others inherently versus like, I need to have verification systems. I need to micromanage. I think we generally are pretty trusting, but I can feel definitely as like layers get added that it's, um, it's harder, like from a, a kind of emotional perspective to feel like things are good because you don't have the visibility. And so then you're kind of relying on these folks that you've put in place to convey accurately What's going on? Is every dollar being efficiently utilized? Because at this point, you know, we're, we're spending several million dollars a year in this continuous investment, right? To hopefully keep growing it. And that's, those are high stakes. Growth even ticks down a bit. It makes you question everything. Like it makes you go back to the drawing board and that uh, it's necessary, but it's not, it's not the most fun. Obviously the fun, it's fun when the ride just keeps going. <laughs> so. <laughs> And we're at that point and it's good. I think it's good adversity in a way to say, this isn't just going to keep going up. Now it takes intentional effort. So lots more meetings and digging into the details. That's, that's, that's the, the long and short of it. It's, it's both digging into the details, but knowing which details are not your responsibility. I think delegation and letting other people worry about certain details of implementation that's a huge part of where we're at now. And I'm sure for both of us, there's certain aspects that we're happy to delegate. And then there's certain things that we still hang on to that we probably should delegate and, and knowing which is which that's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm tapped out of talking about this because I, now I'm thinking about our numbers and thinking about what to go look at and talk about. So yeah, let's get to work. Cool. <laughs> Good stuff. Thanks everybody. See you next week. Thanks y'all. See you.